Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Trades. Canadian playwright Damien Atkins brings his Lucy to the off-Broadway and the United States for the first time. Lucy chronicles the trials of secluded anthropologist Vivian, who never wanted to be a mother, as she is forced to care for her estranged daughter Lucy. The limited engagement will open October 24th at the Ensemble Studio Theatre and run to November 18th. For information and tickets, visit www.ensemblestudiotheatre.org. Roger Bart. Star of the new Mel Brooks musical Young Frankenstein is out of the show since October 13th because of problems with his lower back. A spokesperson for the production said that Bart is responding well to treatment, but there is no information as of yet as to when Bart will return. Matthew LeBanca, making his Broadway debut in the ensemble, is stepping up to cover for Bart while he is out. For more information and updates, visit www.youngfrankensteinthemusical.com. The world premiere performances of A Catered Affair and Oscar and The Pink Lady have been postponed again due to the ongoing wildfires in California. Although the Old Globe itself is in no imminent danger, the theater has canceled performances so that their staff and cast can have peace of mind while dealing with the devastation that they have incurred because of the fires. The theater hopes to have the shows back on their feet by the 25th. Lawrence Fishburne is making his return to Broadway in the spring of 2008 with Thurgood, about the rise of Thurgood Marshall from the back streets of Baltimore to a seat in the United States Supreme Court. Fishburne has not been seen on Broadway since he won the Tony Award in 1992 for his performance in August Wilson's Two Trains Running. The show was originally produced at the Westport Playhouse with James Earl Jones in the lead. Director Leonard Foglia, who helmed the James Earl Jones production, will bring the show to Broadway. The Brian Friel play, Maul Sweeney, will be revived by Philadelphia's Amaryllis Theatre Company. The play, the story of a woman who has been blind since infancy, will feature a blind actress, Pamela Saba, in the lead. The production is being done as part of the Independent Starts Here, a festival of disability arts and culture. The theatre will offer Braille and large print programs for the production. For more information and tickets, visit www.amaryllistheatre.org. And as always, you can visit broadwaybullet.com and click on the show notes for volume 134 to links to all of the stories and all the interviews that we talk about in this production. Top of the Trades every week brings you the best theater stories out and is sponsored by broadwayworld.com. Broadway World is always your best source for community and theater news. On the road. Stephen Sondheim is always... uh, conscious of the musical motifs he attaches to characters and situations, and when John Doyle directs a show adding the musicians, he's very conscious of that. We're talking with four of the cast members here, the Sweeney Todd going out on tour for a year, and uh, I'm going to ask them really quick about how they feel that playing the musical motifs with the instrument they're playing helps to add to the characters that they're playing on stage. So let's kind of start off. Hi, I'm Elisa Winter. I stand by for Joanna and Pirelli. Um... In terms of Joanna, the cello definitely has a very visual and 
than personally emotional significance, I think, um, to her character. Certainly, the, the parts that Sarah Travis has written for all of these instruments, I think, tend to be incredibly personal to the characters. With Joanna in particular, I always feel like there are certain lines and repetitions that very much influence or go along with what she's feeling at that point in the play. Whereas for Pirelli, a lot of her um, music with the accordion, for example, is much more percussive, which I also think kind of adds to what she's doing on stage and how she's staying in control of everyone on the stage. So that's just a little hint of what I feel about those particular instruments. Fantastic. And you? Hi, my name is Edwin Cahill, and I'm standing by for Anthony, Tobias, The Beatle, and Jonas Fogg. So maybe I'll just focus on a couple of people. Um, I, of course, Sondheim always brilliantly brings out the dramatic motifs in his orchestrations, uh, in his melodies, and text settings. And I would say that in this particular production with John Doyle, for example, to add to what Elisa has said, the, um, the cello is a really interesting instrument because it is sensual and erotic in both the way it's played and also the sound that it creates. And as Anthony and Joanna are sort of coming of age and discovering each other with new love, that element is beautifully depicted. Um, I would also say the Beatle being the pianist, uh, which is the piano being a very exacting and sort of accurate instrument that is also underlying sort of the, the music directing of the piece, uh, that also illustrates his role as the interrogator and the sort of um, perhaps OCD attention to detail character in the piece. All right. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Jessica Wright, and I stand by for Mrs. Lovett and for The Beggar Woman. And the instruments that each of those characters play, the beggar woman plays the clarinet primarily, and she does sit down at the piano for a few numbers in the tour production. And it's interesting, I, I noticed that the beggar woman not only begs for money, but she also tries to get money in other questionable ways. And if you think of the way the clarinet is played and things that you have to do with the clarinet and the embouchure with your mouth, it's just, I'll just let you go with that and think about that. And it's interesting that that is the instrument that she uses as her device. And speaking of um, melodies, there's a melody that tends to weave in and out when she's doing her part, and it's her lullaby that she tends to sing to Joanna, and it's very interesting that it's interwoven throughout the piece. And briefly about Mrs. Lovett, it's no secret now that Mrs. Lovett plays the tuba and comes out with a very body, big, low note, and it's funny. I always thought it was hysterical that during God That's Good, when they're talking about how wonderful these pies are, it sounds like this big, fat sound <laughs> that comes out when they're talking about the delicious food they're digesting. So it, it's, I thought that was just a very funny visual and, and audio, <laughs> audio sound. Hi, I'm Edmund Bagnell, and I'll be playing Tobias, and I play the violin and the clarinet. And I certainly think that all the music very much influences and informs every action that Tobias uh, makes on stage. Uh, because he is the witness to the music, um, the music really becomes a part of his emotions all the time. For instance, he begins the show uh, in a straitjacket and gagged, and the first thing that's handed to him is a violin. So the violin kind of becomes his voice during the entire show. And... Uh, it's certainly very helpful for me to, you know, experience the action and the drama through the music. And uh, I also love how 
maybe I'm, I'm, you know, I can't speak exactly for the original production, but certainly for this production, the way it's orchestrated, how they work certain melodies throughout, again, like the Not While I'm Around melody, that's worked into like the God That's Good, and it just demonstrates Tobias's love for Mrs. Lovett during the entire show, and it's a neat thread, and there's so many other things like that throughout the show, so it's, it's very helpful and useful. All right, well, thanks a lot, and I wish you guys the best of luck out on tour this year. Have fun. Thank you. Thank you. We've uh, got David Hess and Keith Buderbach. That's it. All right, I got it right. So, uh, again, I kind of continue with the question of how those uh, musical motifs that you play and your instrumentation influences your character and your choices. Yeah, I was just, hi, Keith Buderbach, and I play the judge. I was just saying to Dave, that's a tough question to answer. Uh, especially for me right now, because I'm new to the cast and I'm hearing I'm hearing this music for the first time, in a, in a lot of ways. And when I when I hear the motifs that I've been given as the judge, you're catching me off the moment here. I would say, oh, it's it's tough. Uh, I don't know how to answer it. To be honest with you, I don't know how to answer it. I, I love the instrumentation. I think Sarah Travis's instrumentation is remarkable, and what she has me doing on the trumpet um, seems. Perfectly right for the judge. The ju you know, I'm finding that the judge, as we rehearse this, is so far removed from the cast emotionally—not the cast, but from the rest of the players. He's in his own little world, and, and he's he's this man with his own set of problems. And so when he does play, it's uh, it's very exposed, and, and it feels very exposed and feels very naked in, in many ways. Um, and so I think that's a good thing because I think that's, that's what the judge is, actually. He's very much removed from the rest of the cast. And when he does speak and when he comes out and says something or plays something, you hear it and it's, and it's very naked. It's very exposed but, and yet crucial to what's going on. So, I, I, you know, thinking off the top of my head, I would, I would say it's right on the money in that sense. David, you have a small part in the show, right? Right. You don't see me very much in this show. Uh, <laughs> actually, that's the interesting thing about our show. We, uh, everybody's on stage the entire time. Nobody ever leaves the stage, so you've got to be really careful about your water intake, uh, or you're going to be in trouble. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to be a part of. And you're, and you're Sweeney Todd. Oh, right. for our okay. listeners. Hi, I'm Sweeney Todd. <laughs> but um, just to piggyback on what uh, Keith was saying, what, as everybody knows, our production is so different the way John Doyle is staged and, and recreated it and re-envisioned it. But um, we're ordinarily a standard production of this. You know, you have your separate orchestra from the players. And here, because we're all playing all the instruments, it's not only do you have your individual melodic or harmonic, you know, themes going on, but what well, I'm now actually playing, like I'm playing trumpet when Keith does mea culpa. So Sweeney is playing the, the trumpet while the judge is, is singing the song. And we're, that adds, a, a, I guess, a separate layer of, uh, of complexity because we're now, as a musician, playing themes that you wouldn't ordinarily be experienced uh, to playing as the actor doing the show, doing the scene. Um, but that's the funny thing about our show as we work through all this complexity. Um, that's kind of at least doubled or tripled because of playing the instruments. The thing is, if we do it really, really well, nobody will notice how complex the show is. Yeah. Uh, because right now, practicing it and rehearsing it and doing it, uh, it's just um, the most incredible thing I've ever been a part of. And, uh, and slowly, we become more and more like a machine. And that's when it uh, starts to be fun. And David, you understudied this role on Broadway, is that correct? I, uh, I was the standby for Judge Turpin and for Sweeney Todd, and uh, I went on for Judge Turpin uh, quite a few times, but uh, Michael Service never missed. So nobody ever went on for Sweeney. Uh, 
He comes from Hardy Stock, that boy, Michael Service. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the beautiful thing about our tour production, too, is there's several people from the, from the Broadway company. And uh, some of the standbys are actually playing some of the roles now in this company from Broadway as well. As well, we've got some, some new blood, like well, Keith. In a, in a twisted word, there's several people from the Broadway company, and there's several people from Broadway company. Right. Well. <laughs> that's true, too. <laughs> like, yes, right, that's true. <laughs> so we've got people from different um, uh, Sweeney productions that were recently on Broadway. It's a great point. And then we've got the new blood, as you know, we were just mentioning, you know, that weren't with the Broadway company. But it's, it's created a beautiful combination of people who know the piece, people who don't know the piece, and somewhere in between, quite a few others. So it's... It's really, it's it's it gives it a lot of strength based on the Broadway production, and yet it has a freshness to it about it, you know, as well. So uh, it's it's pretty fun so far. All right. Well, I hope you have fun out this year, and you're, you're hitting a lot of places. And I have to say, I'm excited to see. This isn't a show I expected to go touring all around. <laughs> no, I don't think they did either. But it's it's happening, you know, which is really terrific. My name's Katrina Yaki, and I'm playing Pirelli on the tour. Sondheim is new to me. And I am absolutely obsessed with it at this point in time, and I can't seem to get enough of it. When I first started studying Sweeney Todd, it was in 2005, and at first I didn't understand. I'm not sure anybody really understands where, where or why he makes the decisions that he does, but it's, the music is just so incredibly beautiful and extraordinary. And the, the most fascinating part of the rehearsal process for me has been listening to you know the musical director and the musical supervisor discuss why why lines move the way that they do and and therefore how you should approach it uh, musically with with you know whether it's just your character or or uh, with the emotion of the music so it's all pretty amazing to me. <laughs> so what have been some of the biggest challenges on that? Well, the accordion is. A pretty great instrument, I think. It adds a texture to the music that is that is rich and lush. And but instead of it being an instrument, you know, like the flute, which which I also play in the show, where I have one note that I have to think about at all times, the accordion is is chording. So and because Sondheim is so wild, you know, to, to have to think through the the chords on the accordion is insane. Mea culpa, for example, trying to memorize that, ridiculous. <laughs> All right, well, thank you. Thanks. Well, I'm sitting here at Chelsea Studios talking with Judy Kay, who is starring as Mrs. Lovett on tour. How are you doing? I'm having such a blast. <laughs> I'm wondering if anybody in the theater world has heard of you. Uh, you know, that, that may be the only in. place where anybody's heard of me, so, yeah. <laughs> well, we got, we got a lot of theater fans, so I'm Good. sure they're interested. We love you out there, theater fans. We depend on you. Well, besides the numerous things you've done and all your Tony stints and everything. You have indeed played Mrs. Lovett before, I understand. I have indeed. Uh, let's see. I, first time I played it was with the Michigan Opera Theater in Detroit, and that was a long while ago. Um, let's see, with David Cryer and uh, an infant uh, Rebecca Luker, who was just out of college playing Joanna. And then the next time I did it was uh, Paper Mill Playhouse in uh, New Jersey with uh, um, George Hearn. And then I did it in London uh, at the Royal Festival Hall with Len Cario, the original, the original, original Sweeney Todd. That was um, a benefit, pretty well, pretty fully staged, supposedly concert thing, but it was pretty fully staged. And then last summer, I stepped in for Patty when she was, when she took some time off. So um, that was really harrowing that, because this production is so very different from the... I was going to say, how do you just step in? Because I understand you had to learn tuba for this. I did. I did. Well, I said I would, and so I did. Um, I don't play the way Patty plays, but uh, I didn't... I wasn't in a marching band when I was a kid. Um, 
Yeah, this was this was really hard work, uh, and it was it was that that instrumental aspect of it that was so harrowing. The tuba was not, because it's you know when I play the tuba, it's going to be for comedy, so that's fine. <laughs> but um, but playing um, the keyboard of the Glockenspiel is is very scary because it's very always whenever it's there, it's very exposed. And you have to play the exact right notes in the right times, and you don't. And all of us feel this onus on us of not screwing anybody else up. If I screw up my own song, well, so be it. But you don't want to undermine anybody else's performance. So that's that's. You start to understand how hard it is to be an accompanist for somebody else. So how much does that the addition of carrying the tuba around and playing the instrument change the role in versus various incarnations that you've played before? Well, you're never out of the show. You never, I never go to the dressing room and get a sip of water or go change my clothes or any of that stuff. I do my scene, which is very in, intense anyway. All those scenes for Lovett and, and, and any, anybody and everybody that she's with are pretty intense scenes. And then instead of going and, and relaxing for a couple of minutes, I go to my little... Uh, uh, what do you call it, percussion set, and I and I'm immediately into you know into support for somebody else, and which is a wonderful wonderful thing for an actor to do. It's a great exercise for us to uh, um, know what it's like not not to ever be out of the barrel, so to speak. You know, you're always you're always there. You're always in the play the way you're supposed to be. Well, now there aren't a lot of decorated Broadway stars of your caliber, period, and a lot of the stars that have done this don't go out on the road as much as even be some beyond this just some of the stuff that you're saying you do it seems like you like being out in different places a lot well, i've done a lot of runouts. i haven't actually done a tour since let's see when was it 1986 was an actual tour of uh, i went out and did yes um, a bus and truck of uh, of on the 20th century after i had done it first on broadway and then done the first national tour uh, i found myself with a, an opening and and something was just calling me, saying, you, you've got to go back, you've got to do this. So I did it, and lo, I met my husband on that tour. So that was the reason for that. This, this, um, at this date in my life, going out on the road is, is a, a sort of an awesome uh, undertaking. But, but, I, but, but doing this piece, I've always said I would go anywhere to do Mrs. Lovett again, and so I am going everywhere and doing Mrs. Lovett again. Now, with this demanding of a role, you know, this is the thing that a lot of actors, I imagine, have to put on vocal rest when they're not, you know, performing in Broadway. Add to the stress of being on the road, and does that make it hard or more challenging vocally to stay up for it every night? We're going to find out, aren't we? Because um, I haven't done this since then. I've done a lot of, you know, going out and doing, uh, um, one, you know, one-outs, doing, doing uh, like, a, a lort. Uh, theater, like, like doing Souvenir, the play that I did on Broadway a couple of years ago, and, and going out and doing that. But uh, this uh, traveling, packing your bag, and um, singing the, this music—it'll be interesting because there'll be different there'll be different weather everywhere, and and we go from um, Florida up to Minneapolis pretty quickly, things like that, and lots of airplane travel, and that isn't terribly good for the the voice. Uh, it dries out your all of your mucous membranes, so. And now you can't bring as much liquid on the plane. They oh, I'll, I'll drink whatever water they have there. I'll think. Well, no, no, no. Once you're inside the, once you've gone through security, you can go and buy a bottle of water. Although I'm, I'm becoming very, 
feeling terrible about buying bottles of water. Suddenly having trouble doing that. <laughs> well, we could certainly talk for a long time about various aspects of your career, but maybe you could pick a, a high point of, of something that you can talk about with for our listeners. Oh, a high point. Golly. There's been so many. I know. I, and we could, like I said, we could talk forever. But no, I've had a lot of like high points. I, get, I have a lot of fun. Um, most recently, I just mentioned souvenir. Uh, and and it's, it's hard to say this, but even, I mean, doing this role is so, this is such an amazing role. But doing souvenir was probably, uh, probably the high point for me. Um, because I love that character so much. But then, you know, then I come back to this. I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to say. Uh, like you said, the 20th century experience, the Phantom of the Opera experience, Sweeney Todd, whenever I've done it, has been an amazing, amazing thing to do. Uh, Mama Rose doing that, was, that was great. Uh, I didn't get to do it for very long. I hope I do it again sometime, because you don't want to work that hard and not do that role again. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh... The whole thing, you know, I'm. People say this all the time, but I am truly blessed to be able to do what I love to do and get it and, and get the opportunity to do it. Yeah, well, I definitely hope that a lot of people out there in America take the opportunity to catch a fantastic performer in a fantastic show by Sondheim and a unique theatrical experience. Oh, I agree with you. I hope they do too. Uh, um, this is this is very special, and of course, we'll be out. Uh, around the time that the film is coming out as well. Ah, yes. Well, that'd be interesting. I think we're going to have to have a little party and go see that together. Is there any, like, actual word about it? I just... I, I... don't know a thing. <laughs> I'm dying. I'm dying. I want to, I want to see it. I want to know. I think it's a great idea, so... We'll Did the see. fact that the film was coming out influence the decision to tour? Because I have to say, well, I thought the production was fantastic. It seems like an... It seems like a different choice to tour around. I don't know. I don't... I really don't know. I wasn't in on those meetings, so I don't know if that was the, if that was came into the decision at all. I think they've been trying to make this tour happen since the show closed, uh, and and especially so much of the core audience were were young, uh, not just theater students, but like goth teenagers and stuff. It was really really cool to see all those young people in a Broadway theater going to a musical of their own volition. Their parents not you know taking them. They really really loved it. Um, it's thrilling. All right. Well, thank you so much, Judy Kay, and have fun out on tour this year. Thank you very much. All right. We're continuing here in Chelsea Studios talking to the cast of Sweeney Todd going out on tour, the John Doyle production. And uh, we're kind of talking about how the musical styles and the musical motifs that Sondheim writes ties in with the way John Doyle staged and assigned the instruments to you and how that influences your characters. So, curious, and I know that both of the two of you are, this is the year you're returning from your Broadway roles that you yes. created. So I'm Diana DiMarzio and I'm playing the beggar woman and um, how the music influences my character. Is that the question? Yeah. Well, the way actually that Sarah Travis has orchestrated it, all of the more, the, the beggar woman has these lines that are very mournful and the clarinet is a very mournful instrument. That's if you play it well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> play the hell out of it. Oh yeah, I play the heck out of it. Yeah, right. But um, uh, so it, it forces me to be very What's the word? Think of a word, John. Oh, I tend to, I tend to be a word geek, but I don't. I know you're a word geek. That's yeah. why I'm asking. Yeah. It's it's just very, you know, she's very subdued and very sad, and you know, mm. so the the clarinet lines that she plays helps. Yeah, they're certainly that. certainly lugubrious and mysterious. The lugubrious. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. I'm John Arbo, and I play Jonas Fogg and play the bass in the show. And I guess um, 
certainly the bass is the foundational instrument of the, of the, uh, of the show and, and certainly in Sarah's orchestrations. And I, in terms of my character, um, I mean, I am, my role is possibly the smallest principal role ever written on Broadway shows. So I don't, I, so, in, so I'm, I'm more of, a, in, in the show, I am one of the, I guess, the orderly or one of the assistants that sort of watches over these loonies in the loony bin. So I have a certain detached but strong presence in the show, I guess, and which is certainly, you know, somewhat apropos of what the bass does in terms of the, the foundational and just sort of underpinning of it. So I, there, there's a certain commonality there. Now, when you guys were on Broadway, it was one of the smaller houses. It wasn't one of the massive ones. And yeah. on the tour, you're doing a lot of massive opera houses. Yeah. How have the rehearsals been different in preparing for that kind of different environment? Well, I think we're going to rely on the sound guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit, obviously. You know, what, we don't really to change anything, really. Yeah, oh, no. well, I mean, just in that uh, our Andy, our, our, who's going to be on the road, our musical director on the road, was saying, always talking about the Fox and where's Atlanta, that Atlanta? Atlanta. It's apparently such a gigantic barn. And so certain things for enunciation and, and, and whatnot, we've been trying to be more precise because and certain articulations in the music because otherwise it's just going to get lost in there. And I'm also kind of wondering, I mean, the staging is deliberately, even in the Eugene O'Neill where we were, um, John Doyle ha had the stage sort of shrunk. We didn't actually occupy the whole stage. So I'm wondering what it's going to be like in a some of these giant well, houses. I, I mean, we're going to be like this sort of yeah. little postage stamp off in the distance. I don't know how well it's going to translate in certain ways. I just played in a few of these houses <laughs> that we're going to. And the first thing when we walked in, I, I wasn't even concerned about the show I was doing at the time. I was thinking, how is Sweeney going to play in here? Oh, my gosh, it's huge. Yeah. You know, so it'll be, it'll be very interesting. Our, our, yeah, our, our set doesn't change at all. It's small. Okay. will be eaten up, I think. We'll see. It will, yeah, yeah. People will have, I mean, one of the... Attra well, the know, thing is the music's big. <laughs> well, the music's big. I mean, the but, the big. but the orchestra, I mean, with this small with orchestration people. and 10 people singing, it's not going to be this tidal wave of stuff. And a lot of the, but a lot of the reviews, you know, thankfully the mostly really great reviews we got on Broadway were, they talked about how the economy of the set and, and the smallness of it really kind of drew the audience in. So I hope that even in these giant houses, you know, people are going to be willing to be kind of drawn in close to the story because that's the only way they're going to get it. Well, this is definitely not one of those shows where the audience can just sit back, relax, and be entertained. I mean, they're going to have to do their part, too, yeah. you know, to, to listen. It is fun time. It is, yeah. yeah, definitely. So. And it's, it's a very abstract version of a show that already isn't, you know, Hello Dolly, you know, so it's going to, intellectually, it requires some, you know, some effort for people to, to kind of grab it. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us Thank and have you. fun. Best of luck on tour for thanks. this year. Thanks. Thank you. I am Ben Eakley and I'm playing the Beatle and I'm playing the piano and clarinet and saxophone. Uh, and as far as these motifs go, uh, you know, it's an interesting part of this production that our instruments basically take on their own personalities. And, and a lot of what we discuss in the rehearsal room is letting the instruments speak for themselves um, when they become part of the action. So there's not a huge amount of, uh, it's not necessary to, to color it uh, 
with our own, you know, physical performances when the instruments are taking over. But clearly for someone who plays the majority of the score on the piano facing upstage of the audience, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't have the option of, 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 coloring, uh, of coloring the music and anything other than what comes out of the piano. So um, I kind of let it speak for myself. And then when I'm facing downstage playing the clarinet and the saxophone, um, it can be a little bit of a bear, especially the uh, soprano saxophone, which is notoriously difficult with the tuning. But um, that effort, uh, I think, kind of matches the struggle that these inmates are going through within the asylum and, and complements, hopefully complements, whatever action is going on without being too distracting. But these guys have more interesting stuff to say because they have all sorts of pizzicati and stuff like that that can... <laughs> Hi, I'm Lauren Molina, and I play Joanna. Um, I think one of the interesting... One of the most interesting things to watch and listen to is that both of the lovers play the cello, and um, this orchestration really connects the two lovers on stage. Um, ben Magnuson, you want to say hi? Hi, Ben Magnuson. Uh, I play Anthony. I also play the cello with Lauren. And I mean, she's, she's touching on something that's interesting, and I'll let her go back to it, but something that I find very interesting about getting to be a musician and an actor in this piece is something that doesn't typically happen when you're acting in a show or a musical is when you're off stage you're off stage and in this production when you're off stage you're still you're still contributing to the story in a way that in any other production there's no there's no way to add into a scene that you're not in but if you're suddenly doing underscoring in a song that your character isn't in maybe you shouldn't be hearing it as as the character but you do and the awareness of, of, of the story outside of your own character's contribution is really quite quite amazing, and it's something that, as we did the show on Broadway for a year, I think I, I discovered so much more about the story because you have you have to be listening at all times. You're not just off stage drinking water and checking your email or whatever it is you do. I haven't been off stage. I don't even know the last time I was off stage. Now, yeah. it's just kind of amazing. And the the communication um, that is involved through that, you know, that that we are still speaking through our instruments even when we don't have words, and um, you know, I, I sit on on top of that coffin and have a tremolo during the judge's Joanna in a frightened, anxious state that is, uh, is my own voice of being locked in, in my room. And, um, and that sort of uh, communication is never really focused on or even present in a typical production of Sweeney Todd. But, but Sarah Travis's orchestrations are so specific and so beautiful and so specific to the character playing the music that it almost always fits the action and it's the, it's the appropriate character feeling the right motion and the right emotion at the right moment. And it's really, it, it's, a, it's just layer upon layer upon layer. It's this heightened state of theatricality. Well, uh, Ben, frankly, you brought up an interesting thing that I'd just like to ask if anybody has interesting stories. I never even thought about it. You know, anybody who does music knows that instruments can go out of tune relatively quickly. Oh, and how yeah. do you deal with tuning the instruments on stage in the middle of action? This is interesting. As far as, as far as tuning goes, I think Ben Magnuson will probably be best to uh, discuss that because it actually happened at least once last year during the Broadway run. But as far as keeping in tune with each other, um, this show just requires absolutely heightened uh, sensitivity and awareness of everybody else and everything else that's going on around you, which is something that we found. We have, um, in addition to our you know runs of the show at this point and our work, um, scene work, uh, in our rehearsals, we have a lot of time doing uh, orchestral rehearsals. And uh, the more we you know play together, we're beginning to breathe together. Um, and it's gotten to the point now where things are, everybody's absolutely completely sensitive of each other. So if, you know, hopefully, you know, I will be doing something which will bring out uh, a musical line that Lauren has or 
you know, the same thing with Ben Magnuson. Um, and so the intonation is, is all relative because these are the only electronic instrument is the keyboard. Everything else is a woodwind or a brass or a string, so we just have to be listening to each other constantly. But tuning on stage, Ben, Lauren? It, it happens, you know, and you, you, make, you make the best of it. My, I, I broke a string in the opening ballad of the show one night. I broke, I broke a string, and it took almost 20 minutes to, to get it repaired, to get a new one on there and actually get in tune because the music is throughout. So it's almost impossible to hear just your solo instrument, actually know that you're hearing the right pitch. It's, it's a challenge, but if, otherwise, as a string player, we can adjust and we can kind of slide farther up at the string if we have to, yeah. but, it's, but it's fudging. There's accents that happen all the time. I remember last year my bow snapped, the hair snapped on my bow, and um, I am downstage the whole time, and I really can't get up to replace my bow, but Ben very sneakily uh, traded my bow with his, and then he went upstage and grabbed a spare bow that was on the shelves, and it was so seamless, and so, you know, you just kind of look out for each other, and where you can help each other, you you do. Unlike and other shows, you're, you're more concerned about taking care of everyone else than being concerned with your own track. You're much more concerned about making sure everyone is covered and everyone's got yeah. what they need. That's also liberating as a performer because it frees up, uh, frees us of our own, you know, actor hangups. You know, we're too busy worrying about other people to worry yeah. about how we're looking or, you know, thinking or feeling at, you know, this specific point. It's very much an ensemble piece and um, chamber music, really. It's chamber, chamber theater. I understand you have a solo album you wanted to mention. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just released um, my first album. It's called Doobie Doo. It's all originals. Uh, it's an EP with seven songs, and uh, it should be out. It's up on iTunes next month and will be available on the merchandise tables. And, uh, yeah, check it out. Lauren Molina, Doobie Doo. <laughs> all right, thanks so much for talking with Broadway Bullet, and have fun this year on tour. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Hi, so what's your name? Howard. And Howard, where are you from? From Dallas, Texas. And what are you looking to see today? I guess we're going to go see Mary Poppins. And uh, what made you want to choose that show? You look like a, you don't look like a Mary Poppins kind of guy. Well, we like Disney shows. So we already saw Young Frankenstein, and we saw Phantom of the Opera. So, What's been your favorite so far? Um, they were both great. So, All right. Well, I hope you get into the show you want. Thank you. Hi. What's your name? Emiliana. Emiliana? Yes. Oh, great. I got that right. And uh, where are you from? Argentina. Oh, Argentina. Uh, yes, yes. Wow, people coming all over the place. How'd you hear about the tickets booth? Phantom of the Opera. And have you seen any shows on Broadway before? No, no. This is our first time here in New York. You enjoying yourself? Yes, very much. Very much. Well, I hope the show's a highlight for you. Hi, what's your name? Emma. And where are you from? London. Oh, you're from London. What, what show are you here to see? Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia. You look excited. Yeah. <laughs> what made you pick this show? Um, my mom and dad wanted to see it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he's kind of guiding, guiding the ship here? Yeah. But are you an ABBA fan? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's all ABBA music. Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you have a good time and enjoy the rest of your stay here in New York. Thank you. Hi, what's your name? Hi, I'm Kaylee. Kaylee, where are you from? Um, London. Ah, another Londoner. I just talked with another one. What are you here to see today? Um, hopefully Legally Blonde. Hopefully. Yeah. If they've got any tickets left when we get there, yeah. Did they show Legally Blonde on MTV in uh, London yeah. too? Yeah, they did. Uh, I don't know if they showed it in London, but um, we saw it, yeah. Uh, how did you see it? Oh, it's on YouTube. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw it last time I came in May. Um, I loved it. I've come with my mum this time, so I've taken her to see it. 
So I got to make this clear. You saw it on YouTube, but you still want to see it live? No, I've seen it live already in, in May when I came, um, but I want to see it again, yeah. You know, a lot of producers think if you can watch a show on YouTube that you won't pay to go see it. No way. It makes me want to see it more. <laughs> well, thank you and enjoy the show. Okay, thank you. Hi, what's your name? I'm Stefan. Stefan, where are you from? Holland. From Holland. How, uh, how long are you staying here in New York? Uh, five days till Friday. So is this your first time going to see a Broadway show? Yeah. So, you know, there's some people that think Broadway's just for girls. What do you say to that? I don't know. <laughs> Good answer. What show are you looking to see? Um, well, we want to see Lion King, but it's, I think it's sold out for today, so we're trying to get tickets for tomorrow. What made you want to see Lion King? Uh, it's basically the only show I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Stefan, thank you and enjoy your rest of your stay here. Hi, and what's your name? My name is Melvin Brock. And Melvin, where are you from? I'm from Washington, D.C. And what show are you looking to see here? We're going to see Spring Awakening. I heard it won a Tony, and it's supposed to be good. It won eight of them, actually. Eight of them? I want to be humming the music when I leave the theater. And um, this young lady behind me, she said it would be like the best show ever. Yeah, we, we did like six interviews with Spring Awakening with various cast members and directors on the show. Tell them to save us like a good seat. I hope they go see Wicked or something before we get up there. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, and enjoy your show. Okay. Ooh, tell you what, uh, this is actually kind of nerve-wracking going out here and talking to all these people and have to speak. I didn't expect that. So, uh, yeah, maybe it's time to hear about a, a company putting on some stuff where you don't need to see another person to get involved. The Coyote Rep and their online sound plays. On the web. Coyote Rep is an innovative new theater company in New York who's dedicated to not just presenting works on stage, which they do, but also to reaching out to a new generation and a new audience on the internet and other places, and through a series of sound plays, YouTube clips, mockumentaries, and such. And we have two of the founders here with us today. How are you guys doing? Hi, we're doing great. Good, thank you. You want to introduce yourselves so people can connect your names sure. and your voices? I'm Jean LaSala. I'm the artistic director of Coyote Rep. And I'm Glenn Callison, and I'm the producing director. All right. So first off, I guess uh, I understand you have a reason for wanting to use the term sound play. Mm. We do. <laughs> we do. Yeah, well, the idea is, uh, you know, we're really redefining the radio play. We're reinventing the radio play. We are um, producing new work uh, exclusively to be distributed by a sound outlets. Uh, iTunes presents a, a great new outlet to distribute that. But the idea is we're, re, we're, we're, bringing, we're bringing a newness to, to the radio play. And so we we're don't not want people to just think of the old radio plays and the shadow and things like that. We want them to think this is something new, this is something more in the 21st century. Right. And radio plays are stuck in the genres, the old horror genres and, mm -hmm. the, and the mystery genres of the 50s and the golden age and that's not what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so what made you decide you wanted to do this? Oh, well, um, 
starting the company or yeah, starting the company, doing the radio the plays, you yeah, know, well, sound plays. <laughs> a lot of the uh, a lot of the people in our company met at UC Irvine in California. We all were in the same uh, graduate program. We also have some of the um, undergraduate. Um, alumni in our group and um, I got here I got back to New York in 2004 after grad school and I realized there was this great wealth of, of talented people that I had worked with in New York and none of us were working together we were all doing the various different things but I figured it would be a great thing for us all to get together and one of the things we had all worked on while we were at school was um, a company that Glenn had started called Theater on the Air and that was kind of our version of sound plays while we were at school and we did pretty much work that had already been um, published but um, we did some new works as well and it was just a great opportunity for us to experiment with with a different medium since we were all on stage all the time this was a a very different thing and was a lot of fun um, that we worked on at school and so when we got here and we started this company and we started working together we thought hey we need to start bringing some of theater on the air back and uh, (laughs) and that uh, turned into the sound plays and we had so much um, great material and new work within the company and outside of the company that we thought um, we could take these new plays and um, give these playwrights an opportunity to have their plays produced on a much lower, uh, lesser budget and be able to be distributed to a much wider audience than even just putting up a production in Manhattan. So um, it became a great opportunity for these playwrights and also for us to kind of keep, keep working on what we had started at UC Irvine. We, we saw the possibility, mean, we discovered the possibilities of radio theater when we were working on theater on the air at Irvine, and, and then it was really a marriage of the drama department, this incredible drama department with enormous facilities and resources. We had people studying, you know, getting their master's degree in lighting design and stage management and sound design, and, and we had actors and we had directors, and we brought all of them together and we went to the student radio station and we said, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Let's let's do plays. Um, and we did some live presentations of golden age plays. And we really were were doing radio plays then. Towards the end of that run, we started dabbling in new work. And I think that's when we really realized the possibilities and mm-hmm. what excited us about bringing making that an element of the company we started here in New York. Yeah. And when Glenn graduated, um, he had start he had founded this company. When he graduated, I took it over. And so it was kind of like for both of us, we were really excited to keep it going when we got here. So have any of the playwrights balked at the idea of giving away their plays for free on the oh internet? Gosh, no, they've been Well it's it's you know it's um it gives us a lot of a lot more opportunity to get more story out there, and and so far we we haven't had that kind of reaction from playwrights. Playwrights are excited to get their and the new people are always eager. It's right, it's the old guard, eighty year old producers on Broadway <laughs> that are just convinced that if people see a three minute grainy clip on YouTube, they'll yeah. have no need to see right. the show anymore. Right, <laughs> that's it. It's all over. <laughs> no, but actually, the first playwright we approached or Glenn approached um, to see if we could produce it as a as a as a sound play um, was is a playwright who's had her work done many times and she's kind of an up-and-coming playwright and she wasn't in our company and she she agreed yeah she embraced the idea yeah. and uh, part of the idea is we're not just taking any play and producing it uh, we're, we're, we're looking for plays that have a specific sound element mm-hmm. that would be interesting and particularly suitable to the medium mm-hmm. and if that's there we, we part of our job I guess in, in trying to produce it is to sell the playwright on <laughs> and, and, yeah. and ask them to uh, to listen to the possibilities uh, of this as a sound play and that this is a viable uh, production yeah. and uh, it's the idea is getting the stories out there and it doesn't preclude it from being done on stage at some point. No. Mm-hmm. 
Well, now we're going to play a, a short excerpt from one of your plays, and these are full-out things. I know that, that at least the, the file that you gave me was like 80 minutes, so mm-hmm. 81 minutes, so yeah. it's a, a full-length piece. We're going to just do a short little excerpt here, so it probably needs a little setup from you guys to sure. explain what's happening here. Do you want to go for that? Sure. sure. Uh, this is Coyote Rising, uh, written by Tierra Palmquist, and the story um, involves two brothers who are traveling home for Thanksgiving, and one of the brothers doesn't realize that he's on the way to an intervention because he has a substance abuse problem and um, they actually get in a car crash before they get home and um, aren't able to make the rest of the trip and end up knocking on the closest door and meeting a family that's um, kind of in turmoil as well Um, and uh, basically the families come together they kind of discover things through um, this Thanksgiving weekend about themselves and about each other and about just the importance of of either staying with the pack, the family, or striking out on your own. And um, and this one brother is struggling with his um, substance abuse, and it takes the form of a of the coyote that they hit when they get in the car accident. They kiss, hit and kill this coyote. Did you pick this because it had coyote in the title? No, actually, <laughs> it was actually, a, it was the other way around. <laughs> the you know the fact that yeah, that, this was actually. Um, this play was one of the first plays we we read uh, as a group and and kind of had a little bit of an influence on our name. So um, it was kind of the other way around. But anyway, um, yeah, and then by the time we got around to doing it, we were like, maybe people are going to think we're only doing this because it has a coyote. But anyway, the coyote is kind of the, the unique sound element that we, that we can play with in this play because she is... Uh, not really there for everyone except for this one character, Jason. And in this scene, um, he's just almost committed suicide and was saved by one of the members of the family that they've just met and um, uh, kind of sparks a, a debate between the family about whether or not these guys should be staying and what kind of influence they're having. And in the midst of it, um, the coyote comes back. So here you go. All right. You okay? What? What? Are you hungry? Because, you know, mom is in the kitchen cooking. Okay. And Jason and I were just talking about when you'd be heading out. Oh, it sort of depends on the car, doesn't it? Well, I'm just asking. Well, we'll leave as soon as we can. As soon as the car is fixed. Yeah, that's what I meant. Ignore her. Leave when Jason's ready. I don't want mom taxed too much. She needs help? Fine, I'll go help. No, I'm taking care of things, okay? What's the matter with you? I mean, come on, pay attention. What? One, mom walks into a lake in November. To save Jason. Two... Now she's playing nursemaid to him. It's just soup. Shut up. Does any of this seem normal to you? Of course it's not normal. Here we go, Jason. Well, is everyone else hungry? No. No. Well, okay then. The soup is nice. Thanks. You're welcome. Now, Ed is coming, so I've got to go change. Ed is coming for what? Well, it's Thanksgiving, of course. With everything that's going on, maybe he uh, should He's bringing us dinner. I don't think any of us want And dinner. he's on his way. Thank goodness, I say. Wow. That really gets to you. What? Ed. This isn't our business, but out. I like Ed. Good for you. Yeah, why don't you like Ed? Seems like a nice guy. You don't know anything about my mom. You don't know what it's like to be a widow. And you do. That's right. So what's wrong with Ed? Yeah, what's wrong with Ed? You're taking his side? He seems okay to me. You're here twice a year. You don't get to have an opinion. Just being here makes you right? Well, at least I'm here. Oh, jeez. Here I mean, we you go. just show up and it's you always the same the story house. with you, Bobby. I mean, you can't be in charge all of a sudden. I'm the one I don't who think you know charge. what you're doing. You're the one who always... Payment, penance, fuck that. Stop. Let's be honest here. 
We'd like it to be enough to say, I'm a new man, and have everyone believe it. We'd like to say, I see I was wrong, and have that be enough contrition. I am a new man. I want to be a new man. Trying to live with him, that never works. I'll be... He will forgive me. I don't think so. Go away. Why should he? God, I'm trying. Stop it. Why? Stop it. I don't know why you keep fighting I have to. This isn't about you. This is about being hungry and eating. It's about being thirsty and drinking. It hurts. Well, what's it gonna take? Please. You don't seem to be listening. We're hungry. Shut up. We're waiting. Shut up. We're getting sick and tired of waiting for you. That old woman saved me. That has to mean something. Jason. It has to. It has to mean something so you can go to hell. What's the matter with you? <sighs> bad, bad dream, I guess. Yeah, you just passed out there. <sighs> Where'd Claire and Pete go? Weren't they here? <laughs> Jesus, Jason, that was hours ago. You slept through the whole dinner. Oh. Do you need something? No, no, I'm just tired. All right. <laughs> so what is the process recording these things? Uh, once we decide on uh, which play we're doing, we um, the first step usually is, is finding the director for it, the right director, and sometimes that's within our company, and sometimes we've reached outside of our company for... And then uh, casting it with, mostly within our company, and then... Um, getting the script out to everybody and getting a, a first read and because uh, we have a pretty brief rehearsal process actually um, for most of these um, usually just a couple of days they don't have to remember their blocking no that's right. they <laughs> and they don't have to memorize their lines so. yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> so one of the that's, really great element aspects is. Yeah. Is, is the low small, small commitment time for actors mm -hmm. and, and, and we've been able to get some great actors in the studio outside from outside of our company because there's a very small commitment small time commitment so it's uh, it's that's been a good thing and and so we have this brief rehearsal period and we kind of go through, you know, the ideas and make sure we're all doing the same, same, same production. Everybody's on board with everything. And then we get into the studio and usually we record them within one night. And then um, after the recording... Do you have everybody on separate mics or what kind of mm -hmm. studio? How does that all work out for you? Yeah, we have a, a fairly large studio and everybody is on their own mic for the most part, depending on the size of the cast. But um, usually uh, we do a few sound effects, very limited sound effects within the studio um, that are done by the actors themselves. But most of that is brought in in post-production, which is something that's very different from when we used to do this at, at UC Irvine. We used to do all of it live. Um, but now, because we have so many great resources digitally, we find that the sound is much better when we add the sound effects afterwards. So then we go into post-production, which usually takes a while, where we work with our sound designer and add in all of the music and add in all of the sound effects and really create the world. Um, so it's it's almost like a film process. You know, it's uh, it, it takes some time and some some uh, some tweaking, and then uh, once we're we're happy with it, it out it goes into the world <laughs> on iTunes. <laughs> So, I mean, you say you do this in one night. Is it how many takes do you get? Does, do people get loopy and nuts and everybody? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We all get and, a little loopy. <laughs> we, we usually divide it into uh, into into units. You know, somehow uh, that uh, ahead of time we're going to go from you know page twenty five to thirty one here, mm -hmm. and uh, we go through that and and. So you got to get actors who can count. 
Yeah, I, that's, been, <laughs> that's been one of the, the toughest parts. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a limited. Right. They don't have to divide, though. All <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, you know, and then we'll do that. We'll give the director maybe a couple of choices. They want to try that, that you know, that, mm-hmm. that beat another way or try this another way. And uh, so there's some choices in, in post-production. Yeah, and we it. try to keep it, yeah, we try to keep it as open as, as you know, the director can, you know, take as, many, take as much time as they need. And, you know, if we, ha- we kind of try to schedule an extra day or an extra couple of hours for each um, recording so that if we have to go back into the studio that it's a possibility but usually it gets done in one night and and yeah they, they do as many takes as they need so um, and then yeah it all gets decided in, in post it's it's pretty fun <laughs> and this is sort of in contrast to the way we used to produce this which mm-hmm. was we would really do it all in one shot because we were presenting this in front of a live audience as mm-hmm. well this is back when we were in grad school doing the theater on the air stuff and, uh, and you sort of have to get it right that time and all the little mistakes and blurps and laughs that come at weird times from the audience just mm-hmm. become a part of that recording and of that production. That's not really what we're going for with what we're doing now. These are recorded sound plays, so we want to stay within the, the, the world of that story and not bring the audience into that sound experience. Yeah. All right, so now you also do some other things. I, I know you mentioned that you got a YouTube channel and mm-hmm. some mockumentary stuff going on. And you actually do some live stage presentations. We so. do. That's right. Yep. <laughs> the traditional theater company thing we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but we, we have a, uh, a mockumentary that we started developing right from the beginning. Um, we were just basically had a camera with us and we're recording our process of creating this theater company. And... Um, kind of seeing what we came up with and it, we had some funny moments that we wanted to develop and we also but then we decided it would be really fun if we developed characters for ourselves um, who had a secret each character would have a secret and not tell anyone else and they would have these one-on-one interviews with the camera where they would divulge their secret to the audience but nobody else in the company knows so you would go back and forth between these clips of these interviews with um, people divulging their secrets and then back to a, a meeting of the company and you know the secret now but nobody else in the room does and they made for some really funny funny moments yeah we were, we just had, were having a great time uh, <laughs> early on in, in putting the company together and we got to a point where we said why don't we try to put some of this on video we had access to equipment we had a filmmaker in the midst so mm-hmm. we said let's try to make and this a part of our company and actually mm-hmm. a way to reach out to an audience and have the audience get to know the company mm-hmm. um, through these little these little short form videos and we again and hopefully YouTube, through that they would then want to be able, want to come see our shows they would want to listen to our sound plays because they kind of got to know us but yes and that's all, all with a little bit other. of a, right. a mockumentary sense of it you know some most of these secrets aren't actually <laughs> not completely true. <laughs> so, people, so people can find out all this stuff at coyoterep.org? Yes. That's right. right. Yeah. And uh, just out of curiosity, we might have a few listeners out there. Somebody's a playwright out there who's interested in submitting material to you. How would they go about getting that to you? Um, well, we typically take submissions at a certain time of the year. We try to kind of limit it to a... Uh, um, at the end of the spring, just at the beginning of the summer, you can email your submissions to info at coyoterep.org. Um, and we would prefer um, the initial submission to be um, a dialogue snippet, 10 to 20 pages, and um, the uh, and a description of the play that you're submitting, and also your bio. All right. Well, I thank you so much for stopping by, Gene and Glenn, to talk about Coyote Rep. And we have a lot of Internet listeners, I know, so maybe they'll pop by coyoterep.org and check out everything you got to offer. That's right. From one podcast to the next. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Michael.
Curtain Call. Well, this has been a lot of fun chatting and finding out what people want to hear. And I hope you like the new two-episode format. We will be back in two weeks on November 8th with another big dose of a lot of great stuff. Uh, Thank you for hanging around with us. And until November 8th, this is your host, Michael Gilbo. And thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.